0: Uh, good evening again, my name is John McCombs, I'm one of the assistant pastors here. Forgive uh, the work behind me, uh, the building is a work in progress, just like us. So, a uh, long way to go, um, but uh, we will get there in due time, by God's grace. Now Tonight we're going to continue our series in the book of Acts. Uh, we are in chapter 5 this week, although I have us uh, going back into chapter 4 to read the passage that came before, uh, just so we can kind of get the context and situated and see the contrast, which is very intentional. And I just have to say this before I start. Well, maybe a few things before I start. Um, Little children singing and fading at the top of their lungs. Is there anything more beautiful? Scripture tells us again and again how to learn things from little children. Little children singing in faith at the top of their lungs. Praise God for that. Praise the Lord. So uh, Tonight, uh, you know, recently I've been preaching out at Mosaic a little bit. Uh, It's our church plant, and I happen to serve on the session there. And when they have need of someone short notice, uh, sometimes I get a phone call. And uh, so if I break out into too many questions tonight or too much back and forth, please forgive me. I'll just warn you ahead of time. It could happen could be some give and take tonight if you don't mind it. We're a small crowd. Um, uh, I think we can pull it off together. But... All right, to our text uh, and the task at hand, which is to explore uh, the situation with Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, and I know, full disclosure, uh, that the Kerbers pronounce that Sapphira. I should probably just defer to the senior pastor and his family that they know Greek better than I do because they've even been there. I always thought it was Sapphira until I met you and your dog. Which one is it? Show of hands, Sapphira? Who says Sapphira? We're doing a tomato, tomato. Who says Sapphira? Okay, just curious. I, I'm not trying to prove anything. I'm, I'm just gonna go with Sapphira. That's the one that sticks. Okay, so uh, the word of the Lord from Acts starting in chapter four, verse 32. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me, whether you sold the land for so much? And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you now. We come to learn more of your great grace poured out upon us in Jesus. Lord, to learn more how you would have us live in light of that great grace. So Father, work in our hearts now by your Spirit. Convict and convince. Guide us. Lead us. Father, be merciful to us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, pay no attention to that additional scripture. It should not be there, so I'm going to apologize for that. Uh, That one is not part of what we are uh, looking at tonight. There could be many, many more in there. We'll touch on some of those as we go. Uh, But I would like to just start off by looking at the context of the book of Acts so far. So, Here's how we're going to kind of work through things tonight. In a very difficult passage, in a very limited period of time, Come to Grill the Preacher afterwards uh, with all of your questions, and I will write them all down and send them to Joseph so he can write back to you and and address them when he preaches next week. Um, A very challenging text, a very short period of time. and um, So I'd like us to look at the context here, I'd like us to look at the narrative, and then I'd like us really to ask some questions, or maybe to let the text ask questions of us. Um, and, and then uh, and then perhaps how we are to respond to that so but, now in the, uh, the book of acts this incident I'm going to suggest to you from the start is far less strange to the book of acts than it is to our experience okay to us we're like oh my goodness what just happened I don't understand any of this how could this be But let's look at the book of Acts. Is this the first significant, kind of startling death in the book of Acts? I'd say in chapter one, Judas' death and its description is pretty shocking. Very different circumstances. Okay? But it's pretty shocking. Okay? So. Uh, It's not the first death we're gonna see in the book of Acts, although it's death number two and death number three, but it's not the first shocking death by any stretch of the imagination. There are many signs and wonders being done in the book of Acts in the first few chapters. And this is uh, consistent then with those things. May not be the kind of signs and wonders we're necessarily looking for, hoping for, and yet we're seeing all of these miraculous things take place And we're seeing a significant presence of the Holy Spirit. And and, and this, perhaps, is uh, a bit of a change in the way we're seeing that interaction. But it's consistent with all those other significant experiences that the Holy Spirit is having upon His people and with His people and leading and guiding and shaping the church and transforming uh, saints uh, sinners like you and me into saints. Now, it's also very consistent. In Acts chapter 2, we see that very well-known passage about how they're uh, um, focusing on the breaking of bread and fellowship and prayer and all those things, and and how they're sharing all things and they're having that in common. And we see that in Acts chapter 2, and we see it again in Acts chapter 4, and that's why we started there today. And if we'll look very carefully then, and we're about to move into our narrative, but look with me. Um, uh, Pastor Naaman preached last week. Uh, I think he recorded it. You could go back and hear that. Um, but let's look in chapter 4, verse 36, just at the very last verse of the passage he preached last week. And then let's look at the first verse or verses of our passage to see the parallel, Because it's very intentional. Okay? So just after, right, we're learning that um, uh, people are giving their testimony, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Nothing, not, no one's thinking anything belongs to himself. Right, there's not a needy person among them. People are selling land and houses and all those things, and it's saying it very generally, right? That they're bringing the proceeds what was sold and laying at the apostles' feet. It's being distributed, and then we read, thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now let's look at that verse in parts and then let's look at verse one. Uh, Back to 35, Joseph, uh, skip the next little bit, sold a field. Chapter five, verse one. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. You see the parallel? Back to chapter four, verse 36. Joseph uh, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money. Chapter five, verse one. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his nice wife's knowledge, he kept back for some, for himself some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it. Back to chapter four, verse thirty-six. Joseph uh, sold a field belonging to him, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Chapter five, verse one. We're well into verse two now. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. It's there intentionally, right, with a contrasting statement to kind of set it off, right? Really, Joseph is what's in there, I think, very intentionally before we get to this, okay? Uh, So now uh, we want to slow down here and go through But extremely similar language we're seeing in chapter 4 and in chapter 5. Very consistent in general with what we're seeing. Um, And just one more thing here. Um, uh, It seems commentators uh, have various opinions on this. But I think most would agree, at least, um, that this is uh, a very significant and pivotal time in the life of the early church. Right? New Testament people of God okay. and uh, the words that are used, specifically the verb uh, for um, uh, Ananias, keeping a portion back, pilfering, uh, you can translate it in, in a number of different ways, is actually the same verb that's used in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, in Joshua chapter 7. So right after the Battle of Jericho, which is a very pivotal time for the Old Testament people of God, a very formative time, a very young, fledgling community, right, a very vulnerable community in many ways, uh, and Achan right, keeps back for himself a portion of what was supposed to be devoted to God. So a lot, a lot of them see a lot of direct literary connections, but I think in both of them, we're seeing pretty similar situations in a, in a young Old Testament congregation, right? the kahal, a Hebrew word, and a, and a young New Testament congregation or the end of this passage has the word church, ecclesia, right? So uh, very similar in, in many, many ways. Uh, this is pretty similar to the story of Bacon. Again, some see significant overlap. Everyone recognizes at least there's some, um, but uh, for what it's worth. So now let's, let's look at the narrative Right. Uh, First, uh, Ananias. We'll look at those uh, few verses and just go through. Because they're actually hard to understand. It's hard to figure out what exactly is happening here, what took place. You might have read this passage hundreds of times. You may have studied it, but if you haven't studied in depth, um, this is our attempt to study it together. Uh, So, we've read verse 1 and verse 2. A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. So it's very similar to what Joseph did, except here, with his wife's full understanding of what they were about to do. And that right, is, we're going to sell a field or a piece of property like everyone else is doing. And that piece of property is ours. And we are going to give some of the money and lay it at the apostles' feet. Okay. But we're going to act like we're giving all of the money. Okay. Now, they didn't have to sell the field, as we'll see from the text. They didn't have to give all the money, but this was their plot, this was their plan. Let me talk a little bit about why exactly, perhaps, that was. But, verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Now, Peter, as an apostle here, who is uh, uh, no doubt uh, the significant human character in the first half of the book of Acts, and is highly under the influence of the Holy Spirit, clearly has special insight as to what is going on. He has special revelation and knowledge as to what is going on. We saw this happen with our Lord very frequently, but we don't see this happen with the regular, ordinary person all too often. But Peter here, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, knew exactly what was going on. He he knew the plot, he knew the plan, he, he knew... Let's just throw some numbers out. It's a piece of property. Let's let's call it a nice piece of property. Most commentators seem to think that they were probably people of means. Okay, uh, And so let's call it a nice piece of property. Let's say it's worth 100 grand. That's a nice piece of property, right? That'll get you something pretty nice. Uh, it, it won't get the OEC, you know, what they're looking for, but uh, if you know what that is. But that's a nice piece of property for a house, right? 100 grand. You can find plenty of lots in Pittsburgh that are pretty nice. Well, if you own one, right, and you said uh, it's worth 100 grand, I'm selling it for 100 grand, but you're faking like you only sold it for 75. So they're keeping 25 or something like that. Peter gets the details. He knows somehow what they're, what, what they're saying they sold it for is not what they actually sold it for. And he says to them that you haven't lied to men, but to God. Which is very interesting. Because they're only talking to Peter. But who is Peter? And who is he representing, And who is the church to which they're making this commitment and trying to deceive? And who are they ultimately trying to deceive? And that's the big issue. The big issue isn't the greed, necessarily, that they wanted to keep a little bit of money back. The big issue is the deceit. Uh, Trying to test God. The text is clear, uh, at least in the passage with Sapphira. So they've not lied to men, but to God. This also is one of those very famous passages because in one section it says you've not lied to men but to God and another says you've lied to the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is God, right? It's a very good passage to go if someone's trying to say that the Holy Spirit is not God, right? Uh, So, um, uh, now, uh, his death, um, verse five, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathe his last. Wow. Whether Peter knew. Whether that was his expressed desire. You could, you could debate that. But this is exactly what happened. And then commentators are fun to read about that. Um, uh, and most come down on the side of it, it was just utter shock. We don't think like that. We want more of a medical explanation, more than just that, you know, something more than just, well, it was a shock, he died. Um, I think if we're willing to let go of our scientific mindset for just a little bit, we acknowledge that sometimes people die of things that don't have hard and fast medical explanations. Have you ever known, let me give two quick examples, have you ever known someone... That's in pretty good health. But they're up there in years. And the spouse passes. And they pass very quickly thereafter. I'm not saying it always happens. But it's like out of the blue. Someone gets sick and, and passes, and then the other spouse who was in completely good health just passes away. Great medical explanation for that? Not really. Another no example. Sometimes uh, and don't let this uh, scare you off uh, from um, hanging up uh, uh, your duties as a Christian in life uh, and retiring from the workplace. Right? We have Bean Sprouts. You can join Bean Sprouts. You can meet with them. It's for retired folks. You can keep working faithfully and fruitfully in a different way. But sometimes, have you ever known anyone that retired from work? And inexplicably, they're in great health. And within like a couple weeks, they just passed away. I'm not saying these are super common circumstances, but I'm saying they they, tend, they 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 do happen from time to time. None of them have a great medical explanation. If that's what we're willing to ascribe in a situation like that, because no medicine can really find it out. It, it doesn't seem like too big of a stretch to say the shock of the plot being revealed like was enough to take us But that's exactly what happened, right? Um, uh, is he died. And so they carried him out. Um, uh, These men came. uh, Great fear came upon who heard of it. And that's a refrain in this passage. And that's something we want to look at and close with, this idea of great fear. But the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Wow. Wow. If we saw that once, it would probably be enough. But guess what? We get an instant replay. See, here we go again uh, with Sapphira uh, and the narrative, right? uh, So, <clears throat> now, uh, it said at the end of verse 6 uh, that great fear came upon all who heard of it, and clearly she had not. So in verse 7, we read, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And you can probably interpret that two different ways. Um, But as we read this, with the example we use, let's fill in what I think makes the most sense. Tell me whether you sold the land for $100,000, right? That's the number they're trying to get credit for, that's the number they're publicizing, that's the good and godly number, that's the the big number, that's... And what are we doing if we didn't know any more? We're cheering, right, saying, Please say that's not the truth, right? Please say that's not the truth. Come, come, Confess, right? Say that that's not it, right? That's what we want, right? But that's not what happens. So she, um, uh, who was part of this plan, uh, says, yes, for so much. Yes, for $100,000. And not seventy-five. So Peter says to her, "How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord?" And this part's really tough because there was no warning here. There was no. Your husband already died the same fate. Um, so maybe you want to think about this before you answer. Which might be if we were writing the story and the architect of it, how we would design it. How is it that you have agreed to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When a young man came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And again, great fear came upon the whole church, and upon all who heard of these things. So we hear Peter's reply in our hearts. We know that this woman is going to suffer the same fate. And she does. And we see that they were ultimately testing God, the Spirit of the Lord testing God, which there are warnings about that, All throughout Scripture, consistently throughout Scripture, and that's exactly what they're doing here. And oftentimes, but probably not the majority of times, the consequences can be pretty severe. And that surely is the case here. So the church heard about Ananias, and there was great fear. And the church heard about Sapphira. And there was great fear. In fact, it seems that even more than the church, there was great fear. As we get into next week's passage, you're going to see many others are also hearing about these things. Some are kind of staying away. I don't want anything to do with those crazy people. I'm like, look at what's happened to them. Um, and uh, I'm sure people say that about us. I don't want anything to do with those crazy people, myself included. But great fear. Right? Should this be our response? Does it feel like it? Does it seem like great fear is our response when we read this passage? Does it seem like great fear should be our response when we read this passage? It was their response, but we don't know Ananias. We don't know Sapphira. We didn't see these things. Like We didn't see how it affected or could potentially affect the community. Is great fear the appropriate response? Now, I'm not trying to persuade you right now, but I am trying to solicit Arguments for or against. So I told you I might get into that, I just can't resist. Should this strike great fear into us? Why? Or why not? What do you think? This is where an astute teacher makes people get out a piece of paper and write down the answer. Because then that forces them to actually say something. But we don't have that kind of time. And then you bring them up here and read them out. But anyone willing? I mean, what would be some arguments for against... Brian, you're saying you're shaking your head? Yes. Yes, absolutely. It should make us fear of God. Fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. Okay. Book of Proverbs. yeah. The... Okay. Any reasons why it should not? Pastor Joseph. I'm just going to guess we should not be afraid if we're not embezzling money in the church. Okay. So we should not be afraid if we're not embezzling money in the church. Uh, Oh, Joseph, I don't even know where to go with that. (laughs) Right? Because can't we like always narrow something down to the very specifics and say, ah, I don't do that. And isn't that wonderful? I don't have to worry about that. But if we step back, that's that's obviously not the case. Now, this is not our experience. We don't see things like this happen. We don't want things like this to happen. We probably think they shouldn't happen. All those could be arguments against, but they're not very strong arguments, are they? And it seems kind of Old Testament-ish but it's not. Right? This is after the coming of Christ, after the sending of the Holy Spirit, the new like it's after all of those things. It's this is the New Testament era. And so it's very consistent with all of Scripture. And it's the same holy God throughout all of Scripture. Now we can ask lots and lots more questions, but at one level, right? And this is not a sermon specifically about. Um, and trying to nail down exactly what uh, the fear of God looks like. Um, And we can talk about that a lot back here. And I think there would be other uh, good passages also that we've preached on before, like Philippians chapter 2, to work on our salvation with fear and trembling and what that means. We've we've talked about that. Um, But I think it would be more helpful uh, to think about our response if if we're going to have a great fear of God, what does that what does that look like? Uh, what should that look like? What could that what could that look like? Okay, obviously a fear of God is not taking in casually. Um, it's, I don't think it's uh, running around uh, like trying to hide from divine lightning bolts all the time, okay. um, because Christ has come, and necessarily things are different in many many ways. Yet. At the end of the day, perhaps this passage is trying to teach us a few things about the fear of God. Perhaps it's trying to teach us that if we had a great fear of God, that that would lead to great repentance of our sins. Maybe this passage is trying to teach us that our sins are much more significant than we think. Because what's this, you're like, well, that's not even that bad, you know, and, but, and yet they die. Maybe where we sit is the reason why it seems not that bad. Um, and, and, and maybe it's trying to teach us that the holiness of God is far more significant. That our sins are far greater than we think and that His holiness is is far greater than we think and that those two really can't be together. And that's what you're seeing some of here. That's what happened with Achan. That's what happens here. Like in the midst of this young, vulnerable congregation, it's people um, significantly testing the Lord um, and we should not put Him to the test. Maybe a great fear of God is meant to give us great hope and power for change. Stop and think about that. Maybe great fear of God is meant to give us great hope and power for change. Do you think it's the Father's desire for us to live greedy, deceitful, swindling lies where we put Him to the test? not. He's a good and gracious Father, and He has sent His Son, Jesus, to die for our sins and to be raised. He he has sent His Holy Spirit to convict us and to transform us, and guess what? This could be the strongest evidence that He still wants you to change. You're still here. You're still here. Like, if we wrap our minds around the fact that This, this, like, what happened to them is what our sins deserve, but Christ took that and said, and we're still here because we have a good Heavenly Father who loves us and seeks to transform us more into His image. Isn't that hope for change? Like, that's what He's doing in us. Isn't that power for change, the Holy Spirit that He has sent that lives in us? We're not talking about putting something to the test, like, out there, folks. We're talking about the Spirit of the living God who lives in us. So I think it should give us great hope and power for change. And I also think it should give us great praise for God's mercy upon us in Christ. Great fear of God gives us great praise uh, for God's mercy upon us in Christ. This passage teaches us a lot about our sin. But it teaches us even more about God's mercy, and his grace, his patience, his care for us. Maybe the reason we don't like what happened to them is because we're we're willing to admit we're not that different. We may not do that exactly. We may not be embezzling money, right, or holding back all. But are we always truthful? Are we often trying to look good in front of one another? Are we often vying for respect um, uh, and doing it in not the most helpful ways, whether it's in our families or in our schools or in our workplaces or in our churches? Are we sometimes deceitful? Are we willing to let, you know, something less than the truth slide? And when we realize the depth of our sinfulness and the depth of God's holiness and the fact that he is pleased to dwell among us, it's really unfathomable. And that should lead to the highest praise. Praise like children among us were seen just some 35 minutes ago. And all of us. Because we are children of a good and gracious Heavenly Father who because of Christ has not given us what we deserve. And He wakes us up each and every morning, even when we're untruthful with Him and untruthful with one another. And that's cause. Great praise. I'd love to get into lots more specific applications of this, but this could be the kind of passage we might have to revisit again um, as we think about capital Because <clears throat> we can really strike the fear of God into people. <laughs> if you don't give enough, no, not at all. But it does teach us some things very quickly, doesn't it? just tangentially specific applications about giving shouldn't giving be in secret and not like open and not for a show that's part of the problem here, right? Um, when we dedicate something to the Lord isn't it his it's his right? belongs to him um, uh, and the Lord loves a cheerful giver right? so in our giving and our motives and all that we do Right, the, the, the church is not a competition. Giving is not a competition. Serving is not a competition. Who can be the best? Who can do the most? Who can, it's, 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 it's not. None of those things are like that. We don't do them to look good before others. Um, God calls us to do his work. And he calls us to do it in faith. And so this passage teaches us right, to live before God a holy, true, and righteous God, more and more each day, acknowledging our sinfulness, acknowledging that He sees it and knows all of it, acknowledging that He loves us in spite of it because of Jesus and what He has done for us. So let this passage encourage us to live more and more as if God is really here and really watching and really cares and can't be fooled, <laughs> and yet loves us anyway. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, you have been exceedingly gracious to us. You're broken and sinful people. You're often untruthful and deceitful people. Lord, we thank you that the Lord Jesus is none of these that he is far more than just an example in this for us, although he is that, but he did these things for us. He lived the righteous life that you call us to live, and he died the death that we deserve. Lord, help us to live in light of that. Coming to you, confessing our sins, acknowledging who we are, recognizing your holiness and your goodness and your mercy and your grace and your patience and so much more with us, and praising you for all these things, because you alone are worthy of praise